the serve of Pete Sampras, forehand of Juan Martín del Potro, topspin backhand of Stan Wawrinka and slice backhand of Roger Federer. I'm Gigi Salmon bringing you the second half of the chat which took place at the NITO ATP Finals to produce the ultimate tennis player. This week's categories are volley, return, movement and mindset. And joining the debate once again were Chris Bowers, Miles McLagan and Barry Cowan with the help of Gail Morfisa's coach Liam Smith. And with regards to the volley, Stefan Edberg was the name on Smith's lips. He's just a class act uh, and uh, his volley for me uh, are the best ever. Um, I think, it's, I think it's, it's from a coaching perspective as well. If you had any example you could ever give to a kid about how to use their legs and get down low and how to, to move on the court, it would be Stefan Edberg. Obviously, John McEnroe's volley is amazing, incredible hands and Pat Rafter. And I mean, there's many through history that have had great games and great volleys. But for me, Egberg, the complete package, his shot selection, his sort of the quality that he put with his movement, his positioning, the way he cut the angle, how he used his legs. I also think it's an amazing example for, and, and sadly, we don't do this enough in tennis we don't show some of those legends to the kids these days and, and show them how did Stefan get down and play those low volleys and things. And, and we should do that more. And I try to do that. But yeah, I think from, from that perspective, uh, yeah, I have to, yeah, it just class act, class volleys and, and, a, and a great example. Chris, you were doing a lot of nodding along to Liam there. But he's, yes, because I, I agree with everything Liam said, but it's not my pick. Oh, OK, carry on. My pick is Rafter. I think um, Liam was doing a very, very good coaching analysis job. And he's absolutely right about that. And there's no question that Edberg's volleys were superb. But I actually think that Rafter um, used his volleys to greater effect at the highest level. And I think Rafter, to see Rafter serving and volleying after every second serve at Roland Garros, getting to the semi-final, and it took Bruguera, one of the supreme clay quarters of the era, to beat him. And then he used that experience to go and win back-to-back US Opens. And uh, in the second of those, when he beat Philippoussis in the final in 98, I mean, his, his unforced error count was ridiculously low. Single figures on a four-set match. And I just think that Rafter had a defensive volley that I would put ahead of Edberg's. I mean, Edberg would put anything away, but uh, the defensive volley, I would say Rafter was better. It's interesting. I didn't think I'd be writing down the name of Pat Rafter on my list when we built the ultimate player. No disrespect to Rafter. And while Chris was talking, Miles, you were smiling. I don't know if it was a smile of agreement or a smile of surprise. Mostly agreement. I mean, I think you know Chris is absolutely right. One volleys are very different now to what they were back back then, and again because of the surfaces, I think because of technology and because of strings. I mean, now it's 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 a one shot um, put away. Um, I, I can't, you know. This is where McEnroe. Can I? Do you just want one name from me? No, no, just <laughs> I like, we like your lists. <laughs> McEnroe, of course, springs to mind. I remember being in Winston-Salem and I was with um, Peter McNamara and I said, I asked him, because I, I, I do love the history and, and speaking to those guys and their experience, I said, who do you think's, who do you think's the best volleyer of all time? And he said, that guy over there, and it was Leighton Hewitt. And I was like, really? Okay. He said, no, no, the guy behind him. And that's when he was, co- <laughs> that's when he was, that's when he was traveling with Tony Roach. Yes. But I hadn't seen the volleys of those days. And, and but Chris makes an excellent point. Now, volleying is all about attacking. 
when those seven volleys, you had to build a point at the net as well. So it was a different court craft about limiting the opponent's damage and uh, what they were doing. Um, but but for me, it's it's Edberg. I mean, I had the fortune to um, practice with him a few times. Um, I also I was on court next to Pat Cash a couple of weeks ago, and I, I sort of framed him. I said, Pat, if taking yours out of the equation, who do you <laughs> think is the best volleyer you've ever seen? And he said Edberg. So that's pretty high praise. But you know, the, when when you played with him, there was obviously he played with a lot better players than me. But you couldn't get past him at the net, and the volleys were so crisp, and and, and so good. And he's the name. He's he's my name for the volley, Stefan Edberg. I agree with everything you guys are saying. God, you're knowledgeable. <laughs> but I, I think Rafter's a good shout. However, Chris said Rafter made semis of the French. Edberg made final, seven volley, first and second serve. And I think Liam's point about technically, I think, is a really, really good point. I, I mean, the modern-day players, on, on, in my opinion, are not in the same league technically as volleys. And Miles mentioned cash. And my, just my memories of cash, of Edberg, just how they'd get low, they'd stay low technically perfect. So their ability to be I, I, able to I hit agree with defensive you on that. The, the argument for that now is the technique... The t- the, the equipment's different. You don't need to sort of get behind the ball the way those guys needed to with the wooden rackets. You need momentum. It's coming more quickly. You don't have time to get... That's a, I agree with you, but that's their argument. And grips have changed, right? I mean, you see someone like Nadal, and Nadal, rightly so, is, is one of the best finishers at the net. But he's a forehand grip. I mean, some of those greats must just be shaking their head, you know, because technically perfect, the Edbergs and, and, and the McEnroe's, et cetera, et cetera, who's also was very high. It was, for me, it was Edberg or McEnroe. But how the grips have changed. And none of the people we've mentioned had to face the kind of topspin when they were at the net that uh, the players today do when they face Nadal because hitting a volley when you've got the heavy topspin of a Nadal or, you know, uh, someone like a Jack Sock, I think is, is a very different proposition. The reason I was uh, nodding when we were, when Liam was talking, um, I was looking at Barry and nodding because we had a chat about this a few days ago. The big thing that Liam said that I totally agree with is I don't think today's youngsters watch enough of the older generation. And I think there's an awful lot that they could pick up. And if you're a keen tennis player listening to this, watch some of the old stuff. It's all there on the, on the Internet video services because you can pick up all sorts of things. I know the equipment's changed, but, you know... Liam made some excellent points about the way Edberg used his body in getting to a good volley. It's interesting. We are five categories in and there is no one that's gone for Nadal. He's got a couple of honourable mentions, but he hasn't come out on top and only one person has brought Djokovic out on top. That might be about to change because when it comes to staying strong on the return of serve, Smith focuses his attention on the current world number one. It's crazy good. <laughs> it's uh, he's not as aggressive, a, necessarily as aggressive a returner as maybe Agassi was. Um, Agassi, just a hero of mine, amazing player. But uh, I think with Novak, the thing that's so, so amazing is how many balls he puts in the court and the quality of the return. You know, it's it's so difficult to ace him. It's so difficult to get three points and. When he gets his racket on the ball, that ball is coming back fairly deep and is keeping a certain amount of pressure on you. And he's asking that question of you all the time. There's like never a break. And yeah, it's just uh, his returns for me are just incredible. Novak Djokovic gets the nod from Liam Smith. I have a feeling this is going to be split between two players. I might be wrong on that. Uh, Barry, 
You are wrong on that. Oh, interesting. Okay. This was the hardest one for me. Incredibly different, difficult choice between Agassi and Djokovic. See, they're the two players I thought we would settle on, but Chris is going to give us a curveball. And minute, maybe, maybe Chris can go last then. Right, you're with, going last, Chris. With, with <laughs> fine. As, as I think he's probably going to have a different shout to Miles I, and myself. And weighing up between Agassi and Djokovic, Djokovic, for me, the number one in terms of the ability to make the amount of returns that he makes. Unbelievable defensive returner. But... As Liam rightly said, he, he is someone who doesn't necessarily win a lot of points with the aggressive return. It's about him staying in the point. Now, of course, there are some memories, that forehand return he hit against Federer at the US Open when Federer had match point and he hit that forehand cross-court outstanding and he's in another couple in, in major finals. But when I looked, again, I looked at the stats for this one and I moved from just the return games won on all surfaces to hard courts because I think that is more of a of a better gauge. And return games won on hard. Michael Chang was number one. Murray was number two. So that put a bit of doubt in my mind when I was convinced it was Agassi or Djokovic because I think Murray should get a mention because also Murray, I f- actually feel, could have been even more devastating on the return if he was a little bit more willing to be aggressive because he like Djokovic unbelievable at making people play first serve return and second serve return I mean he big service was incredible but behind Murray on return games one on a hard court was Agassi he was he was actually ahead statistically of Djokovic and also he was number one on second serve return points one so I went for 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 Agassi above um, Djokovic for that reason but I would also like to mention Edberg because he wouldn't come into the equation and and it was when I was looking at points one returning first serve on a hard court he was number one I keep looking at Chris to see if any name you mention he starts smiling he's smiling at at all of them (laughs) and and no I don't think people he would necessarily come in people's minds so you know statistically he actually on hard courts was number one, but overall in terms of aggressive returns, I, I know there are times when Sampras beat Agassi in big finals because the big server dominated supposedly the greatest returner, but he was ultra aggressive, Agassi, and at times he could take the racket out of your hand returning first and second serve. And there's a moment actually to match that Djokovic return against Federer. Uh, Australian Open final 95, third set tiebreak. It was about seven all. Sampra served out wide. Agassi read it, hit the most stunning forehand, and that basically turned the whole match. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I think you, you've got some very good evidence there. We're leaving Chris to last, though. Unless you're going to give us a different name than the one we expect. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm gonna, but you're going to give us a list. I'm going to give you a list, okay, of course. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to think out loud a little bit. And of course, you know, absolutely agree with what, what Baz is saying. I mean, uh, a name that's always thrown into the mix is Jimmy Connors. And then it's also surface relevant because the way Murray and Djokovic return would not have worked particularly well against you know the likes of like Edberg and Becker on a faster court, although they would have been able to adjust. Um, so Agassi, yes, for that. And that's where the stats are, are kind of... Um, you, you have to be careful with them. They're, of course, relevant. But um, did he play for, I'm going to swing away and I'm, I'm going to break once 
and I'm going to count on that. Um, the other guy in the mix is Federer. I mean, what an unbelievable natural instinct to 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 get a read on their opponent's serve after a while. And and you know, Chris mentioned. Uh, the Roddick thing, which was probably the most obvious because he was well, sort of competing at the time, although Roddick famously said it's not really a rivalry, is it? It's, um, but, you know, he just had this instinct that he could read the serve after a while and put it back in play. But, yeah, for, for me, Djokovic, I think, um, you know, the, the the ability, again, as with Federer, to read the serve, to, to put it back to a phenomenal length, get himself, you know, it, it's relevant to how he plays, get, get him in the mix and create pressure on his opponent. Well, Miles did actually mention my pick. I mean, for me... The debate about all-time great returners is three people, Djokovic, Agassi, and Connors. And I agree with what Barry said. I think uh, Djokovic has a great defensive return of serve. I think Agassi did more with his return of serve, which is why I gave you the, the, um, the example from the 95 Australian Open final. But for me, Connors, for me, Connors edges it because in the early 70s, he was playing a game which was based around very few weapons and he used a racket with the tiniest of sweet spots. I'm not going to name it because I don't want to insult the uh, manufacturer, although plenty of people won Grand Slam titles with it. But it was uh, a remarkably um, difficult, you know, his hand-eye coordination had to be so spot on. And what Connors did was he intimidated and the return of serve was his biggest intimidating weapon. And he played against some really big servers. He uh, came good at the end of the of the Newcomb, Stan Smith era. Uh, both had big serves. He had Roscoe Tanner to deal with. And, you know, people were saying, yeah, Tanner was serving at uh, 140 miles an hour with a wooden racket. And uh, Connors was returning it at 160 miles an hour because he was just using the pace. He rushed the opponent. Um, he got in their face. And Connors is a remarkable social study because he was one of the first sort of blue-collar tennis players. The creation of his mother and grandmother, the two leading people in his life, were both women at that stage who bred in him this idea of, they're out to get you, Jimmy, they're out to get you. Um, this sort of feeling that it was me against the world. And he didn't have a big shot. He was a great mover. He, had, he covered the court very well, but not a big forehand, not a particularly big backhand, but the return of serve, the hand-eye coordination was absolutely stunning. And for me, given the weapon he used, given the fact that he was up against some really big servers and that he intimidated them with the sheer presence on the return, means that for me, he edges it over both Agassi and Djokovic. Barry, did Connors come into any of your thinking when you were going through and you were looking at tables and you were thinking about the great returners? No, um, but I think it's probably because I don't really remember Connors. My, my first memory of watching tennis was Macaron. Macaron was my hero. Um, so I, my memory is not really of, of Jimmy. I remember when he made semis of the US Open as a 39-year-old, which, which actually is one of the great tennis stories. Yes, and the return was a big part of that as well. By that stage, he'd ceased using that racket, but he kept on with it remarkably late. But he was using a much bigger head at that stage. And again, he was rushing players. You're running out of categories, therefore, to get your hero McEnroe in. We've only got movement and mindset left, unless we bring in Chris's inventiveness and we add an extra category to our ultimate player. I don't know where you're going to squeeze him in. Well, new category, doubles and player. 
Well, that's another one, right? Okay, so we're, okay, our player's getting bigger. So, uh, but for Liam Smith, we've just got a couple more of his and then we can add on, I guess, what we like. But we're moving on to movement. And maybe understandably, Liam Smith was a little bit biased. He is the coach, after all, of Gail Monfils. I don't think there's anybody faster on a court than Gail, to be honest. And um, also his, how explosive he is, how he can jump and reach balls and explode and react and go up for the, for the slam dunk overheads and how incredibly quick and, and good he is in moving to the drop shots. I mean, it's, his movement is something that's incredible. And um, as much as I respect how well Novak moves, how well Nishikori, Murray, Rafa, Roger, or many players... You know, Radu Albot, Diego Schwartzman, they move incredible as well. But for me, Gail just has that little bit more explosion and that little bit more speed. Um, so I had to go with I had to go with Gail on that one for sure. Um, and I think people forget he's a great athlete. He's a, he's a, he's a, a huge talented athlete, and there is a certain amount of God-given talent that, that goes into having that like level of movement and explosion. But like I said about Kyrgios too. You, you don't reach the sort of level that, you, that, that these guys are at without putting in a lot of work. And there's a lot of physical training. Again, he's had lots of good physical training since he was a young kid growing up and all the way through his career. So he's developed his body. So he's, he's improved what he had. And even now, we do, we do spend a lot of time doing a lot of strength training, plyometric training, elastic bungees, different things to, to keep that speed and explosion and, and keep trying to improve the... The movement as well. I feel like he's actually moving really well this year because it's even more efficient. So it's a yeah, combo. Understandably, probably Miles, he went for Gail Monfils. But Liam actually gave us a, a mini list there of the good movers on tour. Yeah, there's a few interesting ones and they didn't think we'd hear Radu Alvot <laughs> this afternoon. But, uh, you know, he's, he's doing well and th- th- there are some reasons for that. And yeah, it, it's Gail Monfils is, is the best athlete on on the tour I think if you looked at his numbers just what he can do physically is remarkable he has muscles sticking out of muscles but he's it's not the guy thought, I'm going to take yeah. <laughs> it's you know and going back again like, like Bazza said about Jimmy Connors um, I, I didn't see enough of players in those days I wonder you know Borg was always talked about it what, what a phenomenal athlete he was and, and, and many others uh, Edberg certainly sprang to mind as a you know such a graceful mover and so far Sampras we don't we don't talk as much about um, you know because he had so many other great things but as a he moved like a cat but for for me again this this category I, I go for Djokovic the, it's the efficiency and uh, someone said a long time ago I think it was a basketball coach saying you know the good you know quick athletes look quick really quick athletes look like they have time. And Djokovic is one of those. And you, you can put a handful of players into that. But, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to rush him. Uh, he, he moves efficiently for me. Um, it's, you know, tested by the fact that his career has been relatively injury-free. Um, so he's my pick. Well, for me, it came down to a toss-up between my two boys, Djokovic and Federer, but for very different reasons. I mean, I agree with everything that Miles has said, and I actually think Djokovic covers the court. There's, there's very few places to go with Djokovic. Um, you think you've got him out of position, and actually, not only does he get the ball back into play, but he can hit some remarkable shots where he's supposed to be completely out of it. Federer, I think has been underestimated uh, as a mover because he makes it look so easy. And one of the factors that 
um, came into play for me was seeing Federer come off a red clay court. Now, you know what uh, playing on clay does to your socks, especially if you're wearing white socks? They come off looking orange, basically. Federer's don't. And Federer has this ability to... I mean, it's almost like he floats. And... and if I'd said that before I'd seen the socks, I'd have thought, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm losing it here. But actually, when I saw those... That's what those, people say when you're not around. Well, I know. I'm sure they do. But, but when I saw those socks, I thought, you know, there is something... It, it Obviously, he doesn't float, but there is some lightness of foot about Federer's movement that I actually think is extremely rare. And yes, um, in the final analysis, I would include Edberg. Um but for me, it's a toss-up between Djokovic and Federer, and I'd probably give it to Federer. You're going to give it to Federer. You know, following on from that, as, as you know, Gigi, at Wimbledon, we're very fortunate. We do sometimes, you know, the, towards the end of the tournament, you know, interviews and whatnot, right beside the centre court at Wimbledon, and chatting to the, the, the ground the groundsman one day and just saying, you know, what, what, what was the court like and, and uh, who, who digs it up? And you're saying, well, you know, I think maybe it was the year round it should have done well. And he says, yeah, he's a you know, big guy, pushes powerfully. It, it's tough. You know, Murray's pretty tough on it. Djokovic is a nightmare because he slides around, but Federer does almost float around and doesn't do much damage to the grass. And that is Chris's vote. Barry. Tough category, like most of them are. Um, actually, first of all, when I looked at some of the names, the Djokovic moves un- unbelievably well in defence, his balance. The reason I would strongly argue against Monfils, uh, and I would actually have an argument with Liam, I think he's, he's, been, <laughs> he's been brilliant with his picks, but I would strongly argue against Monfils because he's been injured a lot. And for me, that part of being a great mover is someone who is efficient. And, and I think the point that Miles mentioned about at Wimbledon, the groundsman, I think is very, very relevant because how many times do you see those very best movers, Djokovic and Federer, off balance? Very rarely. But actually, I gave it to Edberg. Uh, and the reasons I gave it to, to Edberg was because I looked at the movement that it's not just about when you're at the baseline. I think, I think tennis court is using the baseline and using the net. And not only was Edberg an incredible mover from the back of the court, I think his baseline skills were underestimated. And we touched on it earlier when we were talking about volleys. I mean, you couldn't get the ball past him. I mean, he defended the net. Now, I know that comes with anticipation, but you could also say that about Djokovic at the back of the court. I mean, he has phenomenal anticipation. So all round, I would say from the back of the court, hands down, I'd give it to Djokovic. But the reason I've gone for Edberg above Novak is because I've just brought the net game into play, which, which seems like a bit of an afterthought in modern-day tennis because we don't see many people volley, do we? I just want to go back to a, a criterion that we brought in earlier in this discussion, and that's about surfaces. Because for me, um, Nadal's movement on a clay court is just unlike anything else. And in fact, I didn't appreciate it until I saw it in the flesh uh, as another example of that. I'd seen him play and then actually watching in the in the old um, Roland Garros, uh, the Philippe Chatrier court, the press seats were at the side of the court where you've got a very different perspective of people and you actually see Nadal play a shot off the back fence. You almost think that on, on his uh, backswing, the ball is actually going to hit the advertising hoarding. And then his opponent will bring him in, uh, play a drop shot on the next one. And the speed that he's around a court, his movement around a clay court is phenomenal. I just never think he could quite adapt it to, uh, certainly not to hard court, grass to a certain extent. Um, and therefore, 
my assessment is based on the whole gamut of the surfaces they play on, uh, which includes um, indoor carpet, which we don't really have these days, the rubber matting that sort of went out at the end of the 90s. But I do think that um, when you actually become surface specific, Nadal is without question the best mover on clay. Now, I wanted to bring up this name, not in terms of putting it on our ultimate player right now. Maybe in a few years' time he will make it. But the guys we've talked about are between sort of six foot, six foot two. And Radu Elbot doesn't get a mention here. Miles, someone I do want to mention, and we talked about this a lot this week, is Daniel Medvedev. Just because this new breed of player that's six foot six and above, the movement that they have for that height, for that build, the way someone like a Medvedev moves around the court is astonishing at times. It is. And you put Zverev into that category as well. And Baz's point about using your speed not only defensively but offensively as well is spot on. Because I always thought, you know, Federer was very quick to get forward and someone like Murray was almost like a a responsive mover so uh, yes these guys do move well but we've talked this week a little bit about Medvedev coming forward it's an area of the game how much does that bleed into the mindset of it and and also just over time you know we watched I think because we missed out on on Wimbledon this year we saw a lot of the old movies and um, the old matches and you know, the tennis is a lot slower and I'm interested to know how much of that is the mindset of what we believe we can do at that time. Is it risky to take your forehand that close to the line to take it early or is it just the equipment and and um, and the way the ball bounces and, and just the expectations of what we can do? But certainly now, and you wonder if that comes from other sports because you see, you know, in the NBA, guys are, are, are six foot 10 and seven foot athletes. I mean, they're not sort of just stiff leg kind of walking up and down the court. They are jumping and, uh, and leaping. So, and of course, training's got better. Um, so a lot of the movement comes from mindset. And I think that's with the likes of someone like Nadal. The hunger, Leighton Hewitt we throw into that mix perhaps, just the hunger to get to the ball. I mean, there's other guys like um, David Nalbandian. How smoothly did he move? How much time did he look like he had when he played? Or Guillaume, Guillaume Coria, I know, I know some of the trainers would take his movement patterns as the sort of the textbook but um, it's a it's a long answer to what you say but the likes of Medvedev and, and Zverev it's phenomenal the way yeah, they move maybe in a few years time I mean the list I have in front of me compiled by you guys is, is packed with largely legends but you did move us on perfectly to the final element of our ultimate player it is mindsets out of all the tennis players in history who has the best mindset Rafa Nadal, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's just, he's amazing. His mindset, his, his work, you know, everything about him when he goes on the court to compete is, uh, is something incredible. And um, an example for young kids, he's the best example you could ever possibly have is, is Rafa. Um, the way he fights on the court, the way he finds solutions to the problems, how tough he is, how he never backs down. It's just, yeah, it's, I think it's the ultimate mindset that if, of any tennis player could ever wish to have and uh, massive credit to him as well. I mean, everything else, I, don't, don't get me wrong, I would take his game any day also, but given that we had to pick one from each category, you know, we had to go with Rafa for that. I don't know if I'm being presumptuous here, but am I going to get a full show of hands for Nadal mindset? Definitely not. Yeah. Oh, you said definitely we are. Then Barry throws in the curveball this time. Okay, then. No, let's take the case for Nadal and then see if your pick can match it. Chris, Nadal. Yeah, um, for me, it has to be Nadal, um, partly for the reasons that Liam says, but actually there there are two others that are important for me. One is that um, I wondered at first 
whether he had false modesty in the early part of his career because he was always saying about other players, oh, of course, I'm up against a really good player. And I'm thinking, oh, come on, Rafa, you just beaten him two and two. Um, and he's ranked 70 places below you. But actually, that's part of the mindset is to say the difference between the number one in, in the world and the 500 in the world is actually not massive in playing terms. Therefore, if I'm not at my best, I can lose to any guy that I'm up against. And therefore, he has a tremendous respect for everybody, which I think is part of the mindset. The other is that I don't think he's scared to lose. I remember many years ago, um, I was watching Monica Sellers at her peak at the French Open and she was 4-1 down in the final set. And I think, oh, wow, I've got an amazing story here. And she came back to win 6-4 in the, in the third. And I was in her press conference and someone asked her the question, you know, what were you thinking at 4-1 down? And she said, I was thinking if she goes on playing like this, she deserves to win. Now, I'm not sure whether she was quite as relaxed as that answer suggests, but I think so many players lose matches because they are scared to lose and therefore they don't play their best tennis. Nadal says I go out there, I play my best tennis, if it's not good enough so be it. And it's interesting when he, he absolutely trounced Djokovic in the French Open final this year, he said look it happens this way. Today, I beat him comfortably. At the Australian Open, he did the same to me. And he accepts that. And that, for me, is all part of the mindset. And the result is that at the sharp end of sets, Nadal hardly ever makes mistakes. He makes a few more now than he did at his absolute peak. But uh, that f is the result of that calm mindset. And I would encourage anyone to do that. Respect your opponent all the time. Um, never let up on anything, but uh, never be scared to lose. And that way, if you do lose, you say, OK, the other guy did better than me today. What would you like to add to the Nadal mindset? There's not much to you. I mean, I, I agree that um, that he's the poster boy when, you know, I, I do a fair bit of coaching and he's the guy that, that I point kids towards for, for uh, you know, as Chris was saying, humbleness. And I think it can't just be on the court, but it's off the court. It's respecting. It's like two, two people go on the court and we will battle today. And... Let, let's see who's 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 better and quite often it is Rafa but it's it's an incredible mindset that's practiced um, not just on the court but throughout his life and you know going going back to um, I, I'm sure that if you had different people in the room there'd be cases for Borg uh, perhaps for Connors too I think Sampras and Federer the belief sometimes is because they were graceful you don't see the warrior and the you know the sweat and the, and the blood and the tears and all, and all that but you know boys Federer I remember Crystal know the year he came back from two sets to love down against Rafa in the final of Miami it was the early years now, you know he, he doesn't need to do that at that stage already he had I don't know how many slams 2005 and, that was and you know just didn't need to do it the, the steel in, in the backbone there and and you know how many categories do we break mindset down into it's 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 fighting but it's also the belief also maybe the contentness which i think chris was sort of touching on after the career like you know what what happens your your, your state of mind i'd like to put in a special mention a little bit closer home but borna chorich <laughs> didn't expect you'd hear that name, no, I didn't expect that name. but okay. i had experience of one thing, the problem I have with mental toughness is it's, it's, it's easier to be tough when you think you're going to win. Mm -hmm. If you've got the big game like, you know, and, and you can see a way through, real toughness is fighting when there's no hope. And I sat courtside and I've seen him win matches that he's got no right to win. He keeps fighting. I'm, I was sitting on the side of the court going, right, how do I pick him up after this one? Um, I'll say this is good and that is good and he's still fighting. And by the end of it, it's like, 
oh, well done. <laughs> I really believe, you know, just an un... And someone like David Ferrer as well, what would he have done with, with, with more game? But just... Uh, uh, almost, you know, jokingly say, sort of, is, is missing the disappointment gene. Just keep fighting. But for me, N- Nadal uh, is the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> there hasn't been a short answer. <laughs> Can I add one thing to Nadal? And you may say this comes under ethics rather than uh, mindset, but I actually think they're linked. You know, he's never smashed a racket. And he tells the story about how when he was very young, his uncle said, don't you ever smash a racket? Uh, if, if one breaks through natural wear and tear, fine. But um, there are kids in parts of the world who would love one of your rackets don't you be arrogant and sort of uh, break them just because you're unhappy because you've lost a point or you're not playing very well and you know I think that adds to his mental toughness that adds to the mindset and I think that's actually a lesson for a lot of people over the years I've been watching this sport there are very few people I have seen who play better when they're angry there have been a couple but by and large if you get angry, your level goes down. And I think that that ethics of I must always behave myself, you know, within the um, accepted parameters of the game adds to Nadal's mindset and mental toughness. It's been a great case made for Rafa Nadal. Barry Cowan, your nominee is? I've actually really enjoyed listening to you guys. Uh, <laughs> I think you put a, such a strong case. And I think what Miles said, I'd like to pick up on uh, on, on what he said about Chorich, although I don't necessarily agree with Chorich, I think he makes a great point that the the top guys are tougher mentally because under real pressure, if the going gets tough, they often got the best serve, they've often got the best forehand, they've often got the best back and the, the best moves. So it is a little easier for them to feel like if plan A is not working, I can draw upon plan B and plan C and plan D. You probably want me to get to my pick. No, no, you no. take your time. I've actually, because, because I haven't picked him in any of the categories and I feel incredibly privileged, like I'm sure all of us have, have done the last decade or so to have witnessed an incredible era in the men's game of Federer, Djokovic and Nadal. And also Murray, I don't think we should forget Murray, that I haven't picked Nadal in any of my categories, that I've actually created a new category. And it was on, on actually to add further to what Chris was saying, the category's role model. And so hang I think, on, wait, 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 who's, who's mindset? Um, well, I'm coming to the mindset. Oh, that's after role model. Yeah. This is a new because category. Because I haven't picked Nadal for any of the categories. He gets his own He gets right. his own I'm going to have to ask these guys for their role. There's a special mention. This is a special mention. That I've created a new category, role model. Going rogue here. Right, carry on. Because I think, and actually, Chris kind of mentioned it, but he's never broken a racket. His humility, his ability to just work hard. And I wasn't very good today, but I'm going to work harder tomorrow and hopefully play better tomorrow. So role model, I think, in terms of the juniors, I think he is number one. Mindset was a tough one. But I, but I actually feel heavily in favour of Djokovic in the end when I sort of weigh up all the, the numbers. Um, and being a, having a great mindset is not also being a great front runner and Djokovic and Nadal come into their own, but it's also being incredible at being able to win the defining moments of matches. And Djokovic's record when he wins the first set in a slam is very similar to Nadal. But where he does have the edge over Rafa is final sets of matches and final sets of majors and final sets of majors and finals. I mean, he's won four of his five 
um, final sets in major finals where Rafa's won three, lost three. And my, my memory about Djokovic at the defining moments was the 2019 Wimbledon final against Federer. In those three tie breaks, he didn't make one unforced error. And I think that is extraordinary to be able to play your very, very best tennis under real pressure and just that, that, that mindset and, and how he's turned his mindset. Because at the beginning of his career, we wouldn't necessarily say that about Djokovic. But now, with, with 17 majors and counting, I still feel he's going to add. And obviously Nadal and, and Federer got 20. But I, I actually was, was, I think Djokovic, the numbers weigh heavily in his favour. It's interesting. I would agree with you in that we had the conversation early in the week, Miles, when I said if I had to pick a player to win a set to save my life, which is quite a dramatic situation to suddenly be in, but I would pick Djokovic. I believe that will come down to mindset as well. I think if I had to pick one player to go that extra mile to get it done with a life on the line, I would go Novak Djokovic. So would mindset, uh, would Djokovic be your mindset pick? It depends what you put into mindset. I think this is when you see Barry cleverly sort of separated a chunk out of there and gave Nadal his own little... It depends what you put in, in mindset because you can also have heart. And some people would say, well, that would be David Frey because he give everything and a little more and you give Diego Schwartz and a mention and Nadal will come into heart. So I think it really, it really depends what you're encompassing in your mindset category. But we have the new category, role model. Would you like to chuck in a role model? Um, well, I think actually the big four, I would say Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray. Outside of your two they boys. Are all sort, they are all first-rate human beings. And I think that is why we've been so lucky. But my special uh, mention category is actually picking up from what you Barry said. Yes, I can. You can't all just yes, choose new categories. Yes, yes, I can. I want this to the, go on forever because this is the great. Best, the best uh, singles and doubles player. And then it would have to be McEnroe, uh, narrowly edging Edberg. Was it just to get McEnroe into this it conversation? It was. I had to get McEnroe. McEnroe, um, uh, it's possible that he played the single best match I've ever seen. But because he wasn't massively consistent, I cannot put him in the same category as the others. And I, I think some when he broke down his game, you know, the others all edged him. But McEnroe had an, an ability to play subl sublime brilliance, which means that I have to get him in here somewhere. And therefore, you know, having, having been, you know, s seven Grand Slam singles titles and how many um, doubles and uh, we didn't play any mixed after he and Mary Carrillo went out at Wimbledon, but, you know, doubles titles, fantastic doubles player. And he was world number one at both at the same time. I think Edberg was as well later, but no, McEnroe's just outstanding. So I have to invent that category for him. So Miles, two things for you here. Do you have a role model and do you have a new category? Because <laughs> <I've, laughs> I feel it's only fair. I feel a lot of pressure now. <laughs> Is there someone that you wanted to mention, you couldn't squeeze it in here, you couldn't stick them in another category? Perhaps, well, if we're mentioning early heroes and legends and role models. I mean, for me, Lendl, who hasn't really got the nod anywhere, but what a great player he was. We'll have to think of the category afterwards. But, uh, you know, it's probably perhaps... Um, and unfortunate that he, as great as he was, he doesn't often get mentioned in that. He, he was a trailblazer in terms of the, the, the fitness and the diet, taking things to a new level. I've had a fortune of, of, of meeting him, playing golf with him, spending time with him. I find it fascinating when um, successful people, I love it when you can see right on the surface why they're successful. It's a <laughs> category, it's a new category. What, the golfing? Yeah, golfing tennis player. Golfing. <laughs> Golfers with the highest handicap, Ivan Lindell. Thank you. <laughs> it, does anyone else want to give anyone else an honourable mention while we're here? I feel the floor is now open. 
I mean, we've very seldom mentioned Borg, who I think warrants a mention, although I do think that he was a little bit fortunate. He was he was the greatest clay quarter until Nadal came along. But I think the, the fact that he won the French and Wimbledon in the same year, was it four times, is just a phenomenal achievement. But I do think he was slightly lucky that he uh, his career caught a, a gap between two uh, strong serve and volleying um, eras. He caught he got he came in just at the end of the um, Newcomb, Smith, Nastasi, Ash era. And when McEnroe came along, I think the writing was on the wall for Borg. And that's one of the reasons why he gave up so early. There was a bit of administration incompetence that I think didn't make it easy for him to carry on at that stage. But that's another story. Uh, I think Borg deserves a mention, but I actually would not change any of my picks. My thanks to Chris Bowers, Miles McLagan, Barry Cowan and Liam Smith. And when those categories were put to the public vote on Twitter, when it came to the volley, there was pretty much one man. That man, Stefan Edberg, taking 90% of the vote, with Pat Rafter coming in with just that 10%. The return of serve, Novak Djokovic, 62% of you voted for the world number one. Andre Agassi got 25% of the vote, Jimmy Connors, 13%. Movement, Novak Djokovic once again coming out on top, but this one was a lot closer. 37% went Djokovic, 34% went Roger Federer, and then there was Liam Smith's pick, his charge, Gail Morfis, with 25% of the vote, and Stefan Edberg with 4%. And then finally, mindset. I thought there might only be one name on everybody's mind when it came to mindset, but it came down to the two, Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic, with Nadal taking 81% of the vote. So that's it. The ultimate player has been chosen by you and our panel of experts. Head to our Twitter page at ATP Tennis Radio to see a full rundown of the ultimate player picks. And be sure to join us next weekend on the podcast for more great interviews and features. I'm Shishi Salmon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>